Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen, and a big welcome to anybody who's new to the podcast, but I know I have a lot of returning listeners, and you guys are just awesome. I have to say that because after asking for case suggestions, you guys have had them rolling in. So with the exception of a couple of my own cases I want to cover that I'm peppering in, we actually have the next couple months filled with all listener suggestions. So if I haven't talked to you yet, which I think I've talked to everybody, and you had a case suggestion, it is coming up. It is going to be covered. Today we are going to be covering two cases. And one is a very famous 81-year-old crime that has been solved. And a big thank you to Donna for bringing up this case. This was her suggestion. And the crime that I'm pairing this with is one that is unsolved, and it's actually one of the oldest unsolved cases in the state. So both of these cases are historic cases. We were due for another historic episode. So again, thank you to Donna for suggesting the first case we're going to cover today. And let's get into it. Our first case is a very infamous case about the Spider-Man of Denver, but I can guarantee you there is no Peter Parker in this story. Philip Peters was an older man who had retired from the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad, and he lived on 3335 West Moncrief in Denver, Colorado. Now, this location is off of Spear Boulevard between the Highland Park and West Highland neighborhoods. So it's across the I-25 from Coors Field, the aquarium, things like that, if you're familiar to the city of Denver. For my non-Coloradans or people not as familiar with the town, this is basically on the northern end of Denver. Philip had lived in this house for over 30 years. He had a wife named Helen, and they had adult children that had since moved out of the home. And although the couple were empty nesters, Philip had actually been spending some time without his wife. Helen had fallen and broken her hip, and she was at the St. Anthony's Hospital recovering. So the neighbors on West Moncrief decided to help Philip out. They would invite him to their homes for dinner and give him leftovers to take home for lunch the next day. So he had some company while Helen was recovering in the hospital. On October 17, 1941, Neighbors started to become concerned when they didn't hear from Philip, and it was rolling around dinner time, and they hadn't seen activity at the house. And in fact, a neighbor goes and checks the house and notices that the lights are off and no one's answering the door, and this seemed very odd. So the neighbors decided to get together and they start to check the doors and windows, but the house is locked up tight. Now, from here, there's some conflicting reports. Some reports say that a neighbor did somehow shimmy into the house through a window or whatnot and found Philip, while others say that they called police and police were the ones to come across what would end up being a crime scene. Because Philip would be found deceased in his home about an hour after he had been killed. And it was quite obvious he had been killed. Philip had been beaten to death, but this scene baffled police. Initial search of the property found no signs of his killer. All the windows and doors were locked. So how did a murderer even get in? Robbery was ruled out as a motive when nothing in the house was found missing. 
And Philip had no personal connections that gleaned any leads to anyone who would want to hurt him, let alone kill him. Literally, the only evidence that police could find was the piece of metal he was killed with. According to Leslie James reporting for Out There Colorado, when newspapers started to pick up this story, they originally called the murder the, quote, Denver ghost house slaying, unquote. After recovering from both a broken hip and finding out that her husband was now deceased and in fact murdered, Helen moved back into the home on West Moncrief. A friend had moved into the house to help her out and make sure she had everything she needed. But both Helen and her friend started to notice really odd things happening around the house. According to an article from the Denver Public Library, things started to happen like food being missing, things being found out of place or not where they were left last, and strange sounds. The odd occurrences caused Helen's friend to move out and she stopped her caretaking duties entirely. Helen's friend thought that the house was haunted. So Helen decided to leave the house and she went to live with one of her grown sons in Grand Junction, Colorado. So the house at 3335 West Moncrief sat vacant, or so everyone thought. Just because there were no occupants in the home did not stop the police from getting reports about sounds and smells coming from the house. But each time that the police went out to check 3335, they found nothing. In July 1942, in an effort to try to figure out what was going on at this house and stop how often the police were having to go out to check on calls about the house, two detectives were deployed to surveil the house. These were Detective Roy Bluxom and Bill Jackson. While they were on the outside of the home, they saw a man inside. The two detectives rushed inside and initially found no one there, but then they heard a noise coming from upstairs. They rushed to a closet and opened the door just in time to watch a man's pair of legs shimmy up into the attic door. They snagged the man and pulled him out of the attic. The man from the attic was arrested and taken to the police department and originally claimed that his name was Matthew Cornish. But after this initial lie, he wasted no time in confessing and told police everything. It was eight months between Philip's murder and this arrest of a man named Theodore Edward Conies. Conies was born on a farm near Beloit, Wisconsin on November 10th, 1882. And it seems that he lived most of his life in that area in Illinois. Conies then moved to Denver in 1910. He was a really sickly child and this followed him into adulthood. In fact, he was so sickly as a child that doctors didn't even think he would live to turn 18. Between his health issues and the onset of the Great Depression, Coney's had a problem holding down a job. And he ended up becoming homeless when his mother passed away in 1911 and started spending a lot of time sleeping on the streets and begging and just trying to scrape by. This is when the 59-year-old asked Philip and Helen Peters for help. Conies had first met Philip in 1910 when he first moved to Denver. Philip was a musician and played guitar, and he was involved in the Denver Guitar Club. Actually, both he and Helen gave lessons in town occasionally in both guitar and mandolin. The Denver Guitar Club was where Philip and Conies first met. Philip and Helen started having Conies over to their home for dinners. And on September 1941, Conies went to the house to try to get some food and maybe try to scrounge some money too but no one was home. This was the point where Helen was in the hospital and Philip was actually out visiting her. So since no one was home, Coney's broke into the house and stole some food. 
Now, this is another area of the story where you see some conflicting reports, and it is an older story, so information has kind of morphed over time. Some reports say that while he was inside during this break-in, he found the door to the attic and got in there and just stayed in the house and came down for food when he wanted, and that one of these times was a time that Philip caught him and it started the altercation that would end Philip's life. Other reports say that since he was able to break in and get food, he just came back a few days later to get more food and that this is when Philip caught him. He had not been living in the attic, but instead had just broken in again. Regardless, that leads us to the day of Philip's murder. He had walked into the kitchen to find a tall and thin man looking through his icebox. And this is when the two started to fight. So whether Coney's had already been living in the home in the attic or had just broken in again, he regardless was not invited into the home at this time. He started to hit Philip with a gun that he at some point had found in the house. And Philip tried to fight back with the walking cane that he used. Coney's hit Philip so hard with the gun that it broke. So he instead grabbed a cast iron stove shaker. I don't know about you guys, but... I typically call them fire stokers. They're basically that rod that you use to stick into the fire that's like raw iron. Well, once he got a hold of this, he beat Philip to death with this object. Coney's told police that he had not planned on killing Philip and that it just happened in the moment. But after Philip was deceased, we are able to confirm that Coney went into the attic and lived in the attic of the home at 3335 West Moncrief for eight months. And once this was discovered, it was pretty obvious where the odd smells that the neighbors were smelling were coming from. This attic was not large. It was a four by eight foot space. Coney's had not bathed in the time that he'd been living up there and had collected all of his waste in the attic. When Officer Fred Zarnow went up to see Coney's attic setup, he vomited from the smell. So not only had the six foot tall Coney's been living in a four by eight foot space, he had also dropped in weight down to 75 pounds from sweating it out in the attic over the summer months as the heat all rose to the attic. According to Leslie James's reporting for Out There Colorado, Denver Police Chief James Childers said of Coney's that he was, quote, the strangest looking man I had ever seen. He was a tall man, just under six feet, but thin as a wilted weed. His dirty hair hung low over his ears, and his skin was the ugly, unwashed gray of an overcast sky, unquote. Police did notice the door to the attic when they did their initial investigation after Philip was found murdered, but they thought it was far too small for a person to use, and let alone one that was almost six feet tall. According to an article from the Denver Public Library, Officer Zarnow said of the state of the attic, quote, a man would have to be a spider to stand it long up there, unquote. From this small statement, the Colorado legend was born, as newspapers named Coney's the Denver Spider-Man. In October 1942, Coney's was sentenced to life in prison and went to live out the rest of his days at State Penitentiary, which we talked about in episode 6 in Canyon City. At the time that Coney's resided there, it was under the name the Colorado State Penitentiary. And Coney's lived under the inmate number 22815. He died in prison on May 16, 1967 and lived 25 years in the jail. He died at the age of 84. He did not get buried on Woodpecker Hill, which is common for prisoners in Canyon City, but was instead buried in the Mountain Vale Cemetery. His burial in an unmarked grave 
was paid for by Warden Wayne K. Patterson. According to the August 1942 Madeira Tribune, Coney's had told Childers that he liked spiders, quote, they're friendly, people are cruel, unquote. Oh, the irony. So before we get into our second case, let's break down some thoughts about the Denver Spider-Man. Musing number one, I found it interesting with Helen and her friend not wanting to be in the house because these odd things were happening. And it seems like nobody was like really alarmed by this. And I just had to point out that like women's intuition is strong. Musing number two. So there's been a lot of pop culture references to this specific crime. And I just wanted to shout a couple of them out. One is a book called Beware the Curves, and it's a 1950s novel by Earl Stanley Gardner, and it is a fictional story based on this case. CSI Crime Scene Investigation also updated the version of the story to fit modern times in season two in an episode called Stalker. And this case and the Colorado Prison Museum were featured on an episode of Mysteries at the Museum. And I wanted to give you a link to this, but I had a really hard time finding which episode it was. So if by chance you're a big fan of the show and know, please let me know. And I guess they actually covered another case from one of the women inmates at the prison in a few years after that. So I'll look into that case for you guys as well. Musing number three. So in researching these historical features, it's always interesting to see how the information has changed over so many years. When I'm researching something modern, it's always interesting because there's always like odd little bits and things that like I've called out to you in some episodes. I'm like, I saw this, but it was only in one place. So really how legitimate is it? So it's always interesting looking at it when I'm looking at modern cases, but it's very easy to see how quickly information can change. So I had come across nine news article that was actually written by a staff at another television location and it had some wild information in it and stuff that's really not reflected anywhere else it had a big long story about how conies had been seen in the house by helen after philip's murder and the housekeeper which there was not a housekeeper there it was her friend and it's this big long story about they how they called the police and it's a totally different story than you find in any other reference so and i'm not blaming that they're being untruthful or anything like that but you can see how information can really change over the decades that it gets a little malleable and a little dramatized and it was just interesting to see that so plainly in some of my research whereas it's usually a bit more subtle than that. Musing number four. I just wanted to call this out as you will notice on social media or on altitudecrime.com. I try in these stories when I am portraying pictures of someone to portray the victim rather than the killer because I think as you know it's important to remember those victims and give them their dignity and I don't want to focus on the bad I want to focus on those people that were good that we lost but you will notice on social posts and on the website for this week that when I reference this crime I actually put pictures of Coney's mainly because I could not find any pictures of Philip Peters so I just wanted to point that out. And my last thought, musing number five. So I was thinking about how Helen's friend left the house because she thought it was haunted. And cases like this show that alive people are always more dangerous than ghosts.
no matter how much we may fear the spiritual or things we can't explain, sadly enough, human nature is always the most terrible thing. Okay, guys, let's hop into our second case of the day. This case is from 1957 and is one of Colorado's oldest unsolved homicides. And now in reaching 2022, this is the 65th year that this case has gone unsolved. Nora Lois Corsi was 30 years old. She was married to Harold Corsi and the two lived in Westminster. Now Westminster is about 20 minutes northwest of the heart of Denver. Harold worked as a traffic light mechanic in Denver. Now, some of the sources that I found said Nora was a mother of three, and some say she was a mother of four. But regardless, what was echoed through all of the sources was that she was a dedicated mother, and Nora was pretty well known by many people in town. So being the dedicated mother that she was, on June 19, 1957, Nora took her oldest daughter to a friend's house for a birthday party. Now, this party was in Inglewood, so it was in another basically kind of suburb of Denver. Sometime during the party, Nora left to go buy napkins that someone had forgotten to purchase and bring with them. Nora hopped in her 1950 gray Hudson and left the party at around 3 p.m. People think she most likely headed to a shop in the area of 33rd and Broadway as it would be the closest to the party. But Nora never returned with napkins and was never seen alive again. Less than a week later, on June 27, 1957, Nora's car was found at East Colfax and Elm Street in Denver. Now, this area was less than 10 minutes away from where the birthday party location was. But it would be another few weeks before Nora was found. On July 9, 1957, rancher Earl Woodhouse was trying to find his missing calves from his herd and wandered into the area of Deer Creek Canyon, where he found the body of a young woman. Harold Corsi would be brought in and identified the body as that of his wife, Nora. Now, best I can tell, this area is about 20 minutes southwest of the birthday party location in Inglewood. Jefferson County Coroner Ken Rainey had no doubt that this death was a homicide. While there were signs that Nora had had consensual sexual intercourse prior to her death, her skull had been crushed with a rock and her body was both beaten and burned. And it was found with a pile of rocks on top of it. Chief Investigator Lou Hawley said that her body had also been dragged about 200 feet. Nora's wedding ring, which had a diamond in it, and an expensive watch she wore, a Belova brand make, were both gone. This watch comes up a lot, even down to there's articles that talk about that it had a rectangular face. So I looked into this and Belova is a very large watch company, but something like this at the time was probably around $100 today. So it would have been noticeable for these ranch folk and investigators because not every person would have had this type of watch. Based on the scene where her body was found, investigators believed that she knew her attacker. So I mentioned a little earlier that Nora was pretty well known in town but there were other reasons besides her mothering that Nora was known in town for. She was not always loyal in her marriage. She was known to have not one, but multiple affairs with local men. And this made this a really scandalous case, especially for the time for 1957. 
Her husband knew about these affairs and he really had told people that he felt he was to blame for how she acted. And the family had even moved a few times to try to get a fresh start in the relationship. Police brought Harold Corsi in to identify his wife's body, but they also brought him in because he was their first suspect. He took a lie detector test that came back inconclusive, and after this, Harold was ruled out. The next step for investigators was to look into Nora's multiple affairs. There had been some possible sightings of her the day that she went missing. Someone had thought that they'd seen her at the Woolworths in the Inglewood Shopping Center, which would make sense and could have possibly been her going to buy napkins. And if you're younger and don't know what a Woolworths is, it's basically like a little tiny department store. There was also a lead from a cocktail waitress that confirmed Nora was at a local bar the afternoon she went missing and that she was there with someone who was not her husband. In a separate source, I found a lead that she'd been seen at Roxy's Tavern, and I'm assuming that these are most likely the same sighting. And if it was, this tavern is located on Hampton and Santa Fe in Denver. But in looking into Nora's affairs, there were no solid links from the men that she gallivanted with to the crime. In 1958, a suspect was looked into pretty seriously, but it never led to any kind of arrest. And in 2013, there was a person of interest announced, and a photo of him was released in hopes of identifying him. Now, I'd love to share this with you, but the only article I found referring to this didn't have the actual picture on it. If you have any information on Nora's disappearance or murder, please call the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office at 303-271-5195. Or you can also email them at coldcase at jeffco.us. So let's wrap up today with a few thoughts on our second case. Musing number one. My gut thought with the circumstances of this case is that the missing napkins that the party needed was like an opportunity for Nora to sneak away and maybe meet up with somebody real quick and it kind of went bad. I could be wrong there because you do have to remember this is not a time of cell phones where you could easily get a hold of somebody, but there could have been someone she was seeing that she knew would be at this specific tavern or whatnot for the day and she could just pop in and pop out. And maybe something like that just went awry. Musing number two. Now, investigators said that they believed that Nora knew her attacker. Now, that leads me to believe that in this area where her body was located, that there was indication of maybe not a fight that maybe this person was able to disarm her and knock her out. But that also does seem a little misleading too, because if somebody had pulled up and dragged her body to where she was at, could she have already been dead before she got there? And then of course she's not going to fight back. So I'd be curious to see what you guys think of that, of which way you lean on that. Musing number three. In following up with that, to me, I think that she most likely was probably killed somewhere else and then taken here to maybe try to burn her body and hide her. I could be wrong, but given that there's drag marks, that's something we see really often when a body is being dumped. So again, please let me know your thoughts on that. Amusing number four. I could see how this could be really scandalous at the time. And even now, people could say that she deserved this for what she did to her family and her husband. And I'm not defending Nora's infidelities at all. 
But also, just because you're a cheater doesn't mean you should get murdered. She deserves justice just like anybody else, and I'm sure especially her children would like to have some answers. So please call the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office if you know anything at all. Okay, guys, that's it for today. Thank you so much for all the suggestions. Donna, thank you for the suggestion on the Denver Spider-Man. That case I was familiar with, but not covered yet, so I'm glad you brought it up. And some of the cases that are rolling in are ones that I have never heard of. So please keep them coming. I want to cover what you guys want to hear. And if there's cases that you're passionate about, please, please reach out. There's a few ways you can do that. You can contact me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. You can go to altitudecrime.com and put in your information there. And of course, you can find today's source materials there as well. Or if you go to altitudecrime.com, there's a contact us form and that's got an email address for me as well. So I've loved connecting with you guys and starting to open some conversations with you. You are wonderful listeners and it's really great to get to know some of you on a more personal level. So please keep the suggestions coming. Send me your thoughts. I want to hear from you. Well, thank you so much for spending some of your time with me this week, and I cannot wait to talk to you next Sunday on Altitude Crime. Episode 44 the Spider-Man of Denver, and the murder of Nora Corsi was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.